for people who are deceived. Look for people who are seeking feelings, blessings, experiences, healings, angels, whatever, that are only interested in the byproducts of the faith, not in Christ. Come out from among them. Run for your life. Because this is about your life. It's not just about an imposing theology or conflicting viewpoint on Jesus. This is about your life. Run from gospels that focus only on success and prosperity. Run. Run from churches where men and not Christ are glorified. Run. Run. Body of Christ, run. Get out. Run from churches where you're comfortable in your sins. Run from preachers that stand and tell stories and jokes. Run like you've never run before. Visst ikke Herren bygger huset. Visst det er ikke han som leder arbeidet. Visst det er ikke hans ord med bygge på. Hans ord med handle på. Det du handler med, du bygger med, du arbeider med for Jesus. Velkommen tilbake til Reformerte Lekmenn. Mitt navn er Håvard Handland. Og i studio har jeg med meg Thomas Oppstad og Knud Ola Roland bak kamera. Og så har jeg med meg Nahum O'Brien også i studio. Denne her episoden her kommer til å gå på engelsk. For vi har med oss noen amerikanske gjester i studio som vi skal introdusere veldig snart. Så nå bare switcher jeg over til engelsk som vi får med oss amerikanske lyttere. Welcome to the Reformed Layman podcast. My name is Hova Handland, but you can call me Howard. Uh, with me in the studio is my friend and co-host Thomas. And today you might also hear from our technician, Knud Olaf, who's behind the cameras, and our American friend, Nahum O'Brien. Welcome. Um, today's episode is about the book of Revelation. And today we have a special guest from the United States. So let's bring on our guest, uh, Douglas Wilson. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. It's a, it's a real privilege, uh, Douglas, to have us uh, have you on our podcast. Um, I got to say, I'm a, I'm a little bit starstruck. We didn't actually believe that uh, we would manage to have you on, but but here you are. So, <laughs> yeah, God works yeah. miracles. <laughs> starstruck is not the right response. We're just a bunch of people. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Okay. Um, we've been reading your books and listening to your sermons, and uh, I gotta say, we, we, it's, it's been a real blessing, and I, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, and I uh, hope you will uh, have a good and long life so we can hear more from you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. Maybe you can give us a quick introduction for those who don't know uh, who Douglas Wilson is. All right, so I'm... Um... I'm the minister of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. Idaho is in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. If you're familiar with the configuration of the various states, Idaho has a panhandle, and we're up in the we're up in the chimney of Idaho. So we're not that far from Canada, not that far from Seattle, in the Northwest. So um, I've been here for 40. Well, I've been here since 1977 going to school. 
I've been pastoring the church since 1979, and it's the same uh, congregation that's grown and developed uh, over the years. And that's my uh, central, my, my day job. And I also write a good deal and um, and serve on various boards of Logos School, New St. New St. Andrews College, and so on. All right, thank you. Um, we wanted to have you on to talk about your book. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, it's it's a while ago or it's uh, one of your newest books, but uh, I can show it to the camera. It's the book called "When the Man Comes Around," and uh, it's a uh, yeah, yeah. That's a newer book. Yeah. Um, it's just come out within the last within the last year or so. Uh, it's a newer book, and it's a commentary on the Book of Revelation. And I need to grab my copy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> so I'm so I'm back. Yeah, the man has left the building. <laughs> Johnny <Yeah>. Cash. <laughs> well, that that was maybe Elvis. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So the yeah continue. I was going to say that when the man comes around is a commentary on Revelation, and it represents a couple of approaches to the Book of Revelation that are unusual to many modern evangelical uh, Christians. Uh, one is it's a post It has a post millennial perspective, and the other is that it. Uh, has exegetically what's called a preterist mm. perspective for most of the book of Revelation. So post-millennialism, in a nutshell, post-millennialism is the view that the gospel is going to be victorious, the nations are going to be discipled and are going to come to Christ. Um, it's not going to fall apart until Jesus comes and takes us all out of the uh, hellhole. Rather, it's going to be... Um, a gradual subduing of the earth um, under the preaching of the gospel. That's the post-millennial perspective, which is by and large historically optimistic in the long run. Mm -hmm. It budgets for declensions and fallings away and, and bad periods because the church doesn't take off like the space shuttle where every day is a little bit higher and a little bit better. It's more like climbing up the side of a big mountain range where sometimes you're going up a slope, other times you're down in a crevice, sometimes you're climbing up a rock face. Um, it's, it's like mountain climbing. Mm. So, uh, but, but overall, if you zoom out, the, the overall progress is upward. So uh, post-millennialism is historically optimistic with regard to the progress of the gospel. Um, if when you ask the question, how do you, well, so how do you get there from the, if you believe in the Bible, uh, if you, doesn't every Bible reader know that everything falls apart? Um, well, that takes you into the realm of hermeneutics and exegesis. And most contemporary, most contemporary post-millennialists are also preterists. So the word preter comes from the Latin word for past. And there are four, four basic uh, approaches to the book of Revelation. Uh, one of them is the historicist, where you believe that the prophecies of Revelation are fulfilled down throughout all church history. 
like you're unrolling a carpet. So you, you would expect, you would look, um, you'd go into the book of Revelation and try to figure out where Charlemagne fits in hmm. or, or where Martin Luther fits in. Yeah. Because you think it's a prophecy of all of church history. Hmm. Uh, the futurist view is the one is the most common view among evangelicals today, where it's regarded largely as a series of prophecies about our future. Hmm. So 2000, 2000 years after hmm. Christ, the book of Revelation is regarded as mostly largely unfulfilled, and it will be fulfilled in our future. That's the futurist position. The idealist position is the uh, is the idea that it's a the book of Revelation is a giant parable in the sky. Hmm. Um, it 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 just shows the victory of good over evil. It's, you're not meant to try to figure out how it fits with any historical details. So um, that's the idealist position, and then you have uh, the the preterist position, which is what I hold for at least the, the majority of the book, all but the last few chapters. Uh, and the preterist position is that these were prophecies that were fu- future to the time when John made them, but which were fulfilled largely in the first century in our past. So John's future, but our past. So we, we believe that just to take an uh, to take um, an example, uh, we uh, preterists would believe something like this. The beast in Revelation is the Roman Empire. Uh, the seven heads are seven kings. Five were Julius, Augustus, and then you count down. One is, that's Nero, and then one is to come. So uh, Nero would be the sixth head of the beast. The, the great harlot is apostate Judaism. She's the woman that rides the beast. And what you're doing is you're talking about events of the first century. Hmm. And those are all in our past. So that is the preterist approach. Yeah, thank you. That's a very quick and good in, uh, overview of the book. Uh, if, if you would say, what, is, what would you say if, if you were to give, um, give the book a... Uh, um, how do you say it? Overskrift, uh, um, short highlight. Yeah, a summary. Summary. Yeah. If, yeah. if, if you if you should say what is the summary of the book? What, what is uh, what is the? I can't ask what is the meaning of the book because that will take us ten hours. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, uh, here here are a couple of quick takes, quick summaries. Yeah. You have two basic two basic scenes. One is in heaven, and one is on earth. Hmm. You have a worship service in heaven, and as God is worshipped in heaven, everything, all the judgments fall on earth. The judgments are largely being poured out upon apostate Jerusalem. Jesus famously predicted that this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled, talking about the the apocalyptic imagery of Matthew 24, Jesus says that all of those things are going to be fulfilled within one generation. So I regard the historical, this is another thing, I believe that the book of Revelation was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem 
in 70 AD. Some scholars date it late in the 90s, but I have a hard time making it fit with anything after after that. And if it's written sometime in the 60s, if it's written before the destruction of Jerusalem, then the the judgments that fall on Israel and Jerusalem and the demolishing of the temple and not one stone being left on another um, come to uh, quite striking fulfillments. So uh, I regard the earthly scene as all building up to the cataclysm of 70 AD. And then the book culminates with when the when the great harlot, apostate Judaism, is put away, is divorced and executed, basically, divorced and executed, she is replaced by the new Jerusalem coming down spotless like a, like a bride adorned for her husband. So it's the replacement of the old Jerusalem with the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is put away, divorced, executed, and then the new Jerusalem, which is the Christian church, uh, replaces her, hmm. and 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 that's how the book ends. With um, John, John is taken by an angel up to a high mountain, and he's shown a new, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, adorned as a bride for her husband. And then the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. It's twelve hundred stadia by twelve hundred stadia by twelve hundred stadia. Uh, uh, we get the word stadium from that Greek unit of measurement. It's about 1,500 miles. So the New Jerusalem is huge, and it's a perfect cube. Well, what else in the Bible is a perfect cube? Well, the Holy of Holies mm. is a perfect cube in the, in the tabernacle. Um, and the angel says to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he took me to a high mountain and showed me the New Jerusalem. Well, who is the bride, the wife of the Lamb? Well, that's the Christian church. The, the Christian church is the New Jerusalem, is the Holy of Holies, um, and that is the imagery that the book culminates with. And that's where I become, in the last several chapters, I think it's largely preterist, and then it, you might say it fades into a historicist um, vision of the church being established and growing and filling the earth. Hmm. Could you um, talk a little bit about Babylon? Because that's a very big character in uh, the book of Revelation. And and Babylon, I know of my own study, it looks very like Babylon is the harlot. But could you talk a little bit about that character? Yeah, so um, one of the things that you see in the the uh, judgments, sort of the prophetic lawsuits or the judgments that are brought against unbelieving Israel in the New Testament. You, wh- one of the things you see is the theme of great reversals. So, um, when Jesus, when Jesus is a baby, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, and he has to flee to Egypt, he's fleeing to Egypt because Herod is doing exactly what Pharaoh did right before the Exodus, mm-hmm. or, or when, excuse me, when Moses was a baby. So uh, Pharaoh commands all the infants of the Jews to be killed. That's Egypt. Well, Israel has become Egypt. Yeah. Right? Israel becomes Egypt. 
so the the enemies of God are um, places like Egypt or places like Babylon, and the message is that unbelieving Israel has turned into her her historic enemies. You have become Egypt, and uh, you have become Babylon. So, for example, when Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and he he's and he uses the decreation language of the sun going dark and the moon turning blood red and the stars falling. You you see this collapsing solar system decreation language. Well, for one of the reasons why many modern Christians are futurists is they believe the Bible and they see this description of the sun, moon, and stars all going out, and they go out that night and look up at the sky and the sun just went down and the moon's out and the stars are all still there and the bible's still true so it must be talking about something in our future okay but what you need to do is uh, and this is something you really need to do with the book of revelation which is the most old testament saturated book in the new testament Mm. you have to go to the old testament and see how language is used there so um how is the creation language used in the Old Testament? Well, for example, in Isaiah 13, Isaiah brings a prophecy, and he uses uh, Jesus actually quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 13 in Matthew 24, and also Isaiah 34. Uh, but if you back up to verse 1 of Isaiah 13, it says an oracle concerning the king of Babylon. All right, so this is a, everywhere in the Old Testament where decreation language or what I call collapsing solar system language is used in Ezekiel against Egypt, in Isaiah 13 against Babylon, in Isaiah 34 against Edom, in Amos against northern Israel, in Joel against Israel, uh, you have collapsing solar system language. Well, Jesus takes language that is quoted against the king of Babylon, talking about a military, historical, temporal judgment against Babylon. Jesus takes that phrase, and he quotes it when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But it's not just Jerusalem is going to be destroyed like Babylon, but Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because she has become Babylon. Mm -hmm. Right? So Babylon's, Babylon's get destroyed. And every Babylon ultimately turns into every other Babylon. And that's what, that's what the great harlot has done. She has become, um, she's supposed to be the bride of, of Jehovah, and she has become the harlot. Yeah. Yeah, he, she has become the harlot. And, and can you talk a little bit about also, because we see in the book of Revelation that the harlot is riding the beast. What was what, yeah. that about? What's that about is, is what it, what it means is you, you remember when uh, Caiaphas is talking about why we have to kill Jesus, we have to kill one man so mm-hmm. the country can be spared. Um, if we don't put a stop to this guy, the, the Romans are going to come in and take away our position. Well, the, the Jewish leaders, the, uh, the Sadducees, the priestly apparatus in Jerusalem, were, had a cozy arrangement with Rome. They were dependent upon Rome for their position and power. Right? So the woman rides the beast. The beast is the Roman Empire, and 
it, it, we're told it's pretty plain because the seven heads are seven kings, and you can you can count down the the emperors of Rome, starting with Julius Julius Augustus, and then down to Nero, um, and then the seven heads are seven hills. It says, and uh, you you know if I were to, if I were to oh maybe a year in Norway. Um, we have nicknames, and if we have nicknames for our cities. Yeah, we so have. If also. I were to say the hmm. big, if I were to say the Big Apple, hmm. um, that's New York. If I were to say the Big Easy, that's New Orleans. If I were to say the Windy City, that's Chicago, and everybody knows those yeah. nicknames. Uh, Rome in the ancient world had that kind of nickname. It was the city of seven hills. Right. So Rome was the seven-hilled city, and so John gives us this neon sign, basically, uh, saying the beast is Rome. The beast is Rome. And the woman, the harlot, is riding the beast. She's dependent upon the beast. She draws her power from the beast. And uh, that's exactly the position that the apostate Jew, Jewish leaders were in. They were in cahoots with Rome and derived their authority and power uh, from their alliance with Rome. Hmm. So, Pastor Doug, uh, Nahum here. I grew up in d the dispensational, premillennial, pre-trib view. Uh, Tim LaHaye books were on my shelves, and um, I think it would help, because I think that's a, a primary view here mm, as well. Yeah. What are the major differences between the two views that we're discussing here? And uh, especially since you mentioned exegesis and hermeneutics, the hermeneutics behind each view, how does it change and do you find one, obviously you do find one more consistent than the other? Yeah. So I would say the, the main difference between uh, dispensationalism and the view I'm articulating, which is I would describe as Bible believing, a Bible-believing preterism, is this. Most dispensationalists have been trained to react when they see someone, quote-unquote, spiritualizing the text. Yeah. Because they, they think that spiritualizing the text is something that liberals do. Hmm. Okay? So it, they, they're on their guard because it seems like incipient liberalism. And this, the central axiomatic hermeneutical rule that dispensationalists have, I think uh, Ryrie put it this way, literal unless absurd. Yeah. Okay? So you take, you take the Bible literally unless it's absurd. <laughs> Well, of course, we can all agree with that. Um, you know, Jesus says, "I'm the door. Nobody looks for a doorknob." That would be absurd. That would be absurd, mm -hmm. right? Um, but you, at some point, you have to ask, "Absurd by what standard?" Yeah. How how is it absurd? Uh, so, if I were to say, for example, before um, before the Gulf War, before um, the United States went to war with Iraq, um, we <clears throat> our military leaders uh, announced a shock and awe campaign. Um, and suppose someone had come on and said to us uh, on the news and said to Saddam Hussein, your lights are going to go out. Mm. All right. Y your sun is going to go down at noonday. Everybody would know that we were talking about the military is coming. It's going to conquer your, going to conquer your country. Uh, that's not absurd. That's a figure of speech. So the question is, when I go, uh, if someone says, well, it, it's absurd 
to apply the decreation language of Matthew 24, it's absurd to apply it to the destruction of Jerusalem because it says stars, it says moon, it says sun, Mm. right? But then if I go back and I go through the entire Old Testament and I see this kind of language used multiple times and never once is it used of the end of the space-time continuum, Mm -hmm. and every time the Bible talks this way, it's talking about the destruction of Edom or the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Israel. Why can't it be talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in the New Testament in the same way and have that be held by a Bible believer? I, I think uh, something that m- maybe scares someone is, is that, okay, I always thought that the book of Revelation, it, it's the last book of the Bible, and and that's because it's something that is in our future. But if it's not, if if everything in our Revelation isn't our, isn't in our future, what is then in our future? What what are we supposed to? What texts are we supposed to go to, to to and ask? Is right. Yeah, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand what you mean. So you have to be careful hmm. at this point because in our future, in our future, is the second coming of Christ or the. I prefer to say the final coming of Jesus Christ. Mm. So as I look forward to the future, I look forward to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And then after the Great Commission is fulfilled, um, and there's a golden golden age of, of where the world is functioning, still fallen, still sin is present, but still but people are believing in God, right? They're trusting in they're trusting in Christ. Um uh, So we're looking forward to the final coming of Christ. That's what we're looking forward to. And we're looking forward to the building of the kingdom of God uh, prior to that time. That's that's what we have to look forward to. Hmm. Um, there is a view. I So I describe myself as a preterist, meaning that I believe that many of the passages that people take as being um, in our future are actually fulfilled, in my view, in the first century okay now there is a group uh, so i'm a preterist but there are some people a handful of people out there who are hyper preterists in that they believe that every prophecy in the new testament is talking about the the destruction of jerusalem Uh, so they don't believe that there are any prophecies left to be fulfilled at all including the final coming of the lord jesus Okay, so there is a hyper-preterist position out there. I would warn people to stay away from it. It's not good, um, because it really does leave you with nothing to look forward to. Um, There's nothing there. Um, The Christian church historically has not really ever come down on uh, eschatological issues. There is no universal consensus on post-millennial, amillennial, pre-millennial Uh, except there's, except for one thing, mm. and that is, um, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, and you see the confession the universal church makes, that I believe that Jesus Christ will come to judge the quick and the dead, to yeah. judge the living and the dead. That is, the, the one thing that the universal church agrees on eschatologically mm. is that hyper-preterism <laughs> is wrong. Yeah. That, that's That's the only thing. The universal church is agreed on when it comes to eschatology. Yeah. Did you have some questions, Thomas? 
Yeah, uh, it's Thomas Eyre, Mr. Wilson. And um, if most of the book of Revelation is about the leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, a local judgment, why do we also uh, read verses like, uh, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And you have in uh, chapter 6 of uh, Revelation uh, this bright red horse who was given permission to take peace from the earth. You read verses like every eye and the whole earth when it's talking yeah. about the local judgment. Okay, great question. I'll start with the second question <laughs> first. Um, the word gay, um, uh, gamma epsilon, it is uh, it can be rendered earth, and it can also be rendered land. Hmm. Okay, so many of the many of the passages that we read as being um, talking about the whole globe are that's simple, simply an assumption that we say, okay, I'm going to go with earth here instead of land. Uh, the judgments are poured out on the land. Uh, I think we're primarily talking about a local judgment. And I believe that the Greek bears that out. If it, these are judgments that come down upon the land. Um, now, on, on passages like every eye will see him, uh, one of the things that we have to, I, I, let me uh, hit the pause button and say something else for a minute. Um, and this has to do with how we treat the Bible overall. Okay. Years ago, this was probably one of the first things that got me in trouble was uh, I went through, I went through my new Testament. I had a Bible that uh, right over there um, that I went through and I marked uh, every quotation from the old Testament I highlighted it in the New Testament. And many editions of the Bible have the Old Testament reference of where that quote's from in the New Testament. So I highlighted that reference, and I highlighted the text in the Bible. And then I went, and I spent two or three weeks doing this. I went back, and I looked up all those verses in the Old Testament, and I highlighted them in the Old Testament. And in many editions of the Bible don't have that kind of uh, cross-reference in the Old Testament. So what I did is I highlighted that passage in the Old Testament, and then I wrote in the margin where in the New Testament this was quoted. And when I was done, I had myself a homemade apostolic study Bible, because <laughs> that, that meant that when, when I was reading through Deuteronomy or reading through the Psalms, when I come to Psalm 2, I see, let's say, three or four places where this is highlighted, and in the margin, those places in the New Testament that talk about this verse. Okay, so I had a, a highlighted Bible that informed me, where does the New Testament teach me what this verse means? Yeah. Okay? Um, now, that, that, I did that for the whole Bible. It's really a uh, fascinating exercise, and it's amazing how often the New Testament tells you something about the Old Testament uh and the only people who appear to think that that's what this verse means are the writers of the New Testament. Nobody else, nobody else seems to think that. Uh, so you're reading, you're reading Genesis six, and uh, no, about the account of Noah's flood, and the, in the margin, you see, oh, Peter teaches us that this represents Christian baptism. Mm. Oh, <laughs> who, who knew? So all of that uh, is building up to every eye will see him. Um, you, they will look on him whom they have pierced in Zechariah, etc. 
in Daniel, uh, uh, Jesus talks about this, and he says this at his trial, uh, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? And and those were the words that actually condemned him. Uh, the, the high priest tears his robes, you've heard the blasphemy, right? Uh, but if you look, Jesus is quoting Daniel 7.13. If you go back to Daniel 7.13, the sun, I saw the, I saw in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, where does he come? In Daniel 7, he comes into the throne room of the Ancient of Days. Mm. Okay? It, the coming on the clouds of heaven is not the final coming to earth. The coming on the clouds of heaven is the coming <clears throat> of the ascension. It's the coming of Christ back into heaven. Yeah. Okay? And... Uh, and Jesus quotes that explicitly, and then the high priest tears his robes and says, basically, you're, you're in that passage, the Ancient of Days gives the one like a son of man universal dominion over all nations and tribes and ev- everybody, and it's no wonder that he tore his robes. It's no wonder that he thought it, he thought it was blasphemous. And Jesus says, you will see that you will see this. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, Jesus is ushered into the throne room of the ancient of days he's given universal dominion sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool jesus is given the rod of iron in psalm 2 and his first judicial act wielding that rod of iron is smashing jerusalem in 70 a.d you will see it you will see it so the 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 evidences of the rule of christ are going to be manifestly plain you're not, he's not saying that Caiaphas is going to be up in heaven watching Jesus come into the courts of heaven, but he's going to see, he's going to see the impact or the, uh, the influence, the impact, the results of the manifestation of Christ's kingly rule. Yeah, that's a very good point. Nahum, do you have a question? Well, so I'm kind of switching gears a little bit. Uh, you've mentioned Matthew 24 quite a few times. We have a dear brother here in Norway who uh, would argue that Matthew 24 has a dual fulfillment, that while it was literally fulfilled in uh, 70 AD, that there's a futuristic uh, fulfillment to come. How would you respond to our brother? So I um, I I would split it in two. First, one of the things that you see all the way through the Bible, um, beginning with Sodom and Gomorrah, is that God's God's judgments have a lot of uh, there? There's a common theme that runs through God's judgments, the way He judges. So I don't the way He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, or Noah's flood, or uh, you know the different judgments that the the judge the destruction of Jerusalem uh, under the Babylonians. God's judgments are visited in in spectacular ways, and there are, there are very common themes in them. I have no reason for denying a priori that that's going to stop. I don't have, I don't have any reason for saying that the final cataclysmic judgment at the Lord's final coming can't be anything like his prior judgments. I, I don't, so I'm, I'm, ex, I'm fully prepared to accept a, uh, the possibility of dual fulfillment or similarity. I think the 
the prime the thing that Jesus was talking about was 70 AD. But I have no reason to to say that God wouldn't do it again. Mm. Now that's a good answer. Okay, that's mm. the first part. The second part is I don't want God doing it again to run me into ab- absurdities that I think that some of our stricter dispensational brothers wind up with, because if if God is going to um, visit us with His judgments again, that's one thing. I, yeah, He'll He'll do it in a similar way as what He's done in the past. But I don't want to be committed to a rebuilt temple so that the temple can be destroyed again. Mm-hmm. Okay, because if you if you rebuild a temple, then what do you do in a temple? You sacrifice animals in it. Does what does God think of that? Um, uh, does God want the Jews to rebuild the temple? Does He want them to sacrifice a heifer? Does He want them to go back to the blood of bulls and goats? Well, no. The whole book of Hebrews is written against that kind of thinking. So the dispensationalists are kind of stuck with a, a rebuilt temple with sacrifices that God's somehow accepting. Hmm. And and I just don't think that that's in the cards. So I don't want to rebuild temple so that it can be destroyed again at the end of the world. But I do believe that God's judgments at the end of the world are going to have the same family resemblance that all of his judgments have had. Yeah, um, we have to, when we talk about the Book of Revelation, we have to talk about six six six. So, so now I wanted to ask you, what, what, how are we to interpret that passage? Who or what is six hundred and sixty-six? Okay, thank you for asking that one. Yeah, that's <laughs> a fun one. So, uh, uh, I'm uh, I can't say anything about Norwegian. I don't know what Norwegian does. But in English, we have a Roman alphabet and Arabic numerals. So when we do math, we do math with Arabic numerals, and we write letters with Roman letters. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um, In Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin, it wasn't that way. Okay? They, their letters did double duty for writing something, and for adding things up. So consequently, in, in Latin, oh, well, I'll, I'll take Greek. In Greek, uh, the first letter of the alphabet is alpha, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, so on. Uh, alpha was one, beta was two, gamma was three, delta was four, and so on. So each letter had a numerical value, okay? Now, that means that you could, if if English did that, my name, Doug, D would be the fourth letter in, so D, D would be D, and D would also be four, Yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. So what you do is you look at someone's name, and you, you can see, you can toggle the, you sometimes see those optical illusion uh, uh, drawings, this is a vase or it's two people face each other or, you know, you just toggle something in your brain and you see it this way and then you see it that way. You could look at someone's name and see their name, or you could toggle in your mind and see a row of numbers. Hmm. Okay. So that, what that meant is that everyone's name, if you added up the numerical value of each letter, everyone's name had a numerical value. 
there was a, they found some graffiti at Pompeii that said, I love her whose number is, okay. And it was a very common, and it wasn't talking about phone, phone number. It was uh, her, the numerical value of her name. So it, this was commonplace. It was ordinary. But John, when he says, this is the number of a man, and he's, but he then says, this calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Uh, you have to think about it for a bit. Well, the first thing that's obvious is that John, in writing it, John knew who he was talking about. Hmm. Now, John knew the answer to that puzzle. John knew who he was talking about. And he thought that a clever teenager at, in Ephesus should be able to figure it out, too. Mm -hmm. he has, if you're clever, you should be able to figure out what I'm talking about. Remember also that John is on Patmos in exile, and his letters quite possibly would have been read and censored, anything he sent out. Um, so there couldn't be uh, the book of Romans, uh, the book of Revelation, is a, a series of judgments on uh, on Jerusalem primarily, but Rome is entailed in it. The head of the beast is struck. There are God's judgments on Rome as well. So it's apocalyptic literature. As far as the Roman censors are concerned, the whole thing is in code. Hmm. Okay. So John wants to take special care uh, to make sure that he doesn't say anything too obviously subversive. Right. So he says, this is the number of a man. It's the number of the beast. And the number is 666. Okay. So if you take, um, if you take Nero Kisar, Neron Kisar, which is the form of Nero Caesar, if you take Nero Caesar and put it into Hebrew. So Neron Kisar is the form of Nero's name as it appeared on at least some coins, uh, or at least one coin. Neron Kisar, Nero Caesar. If you translate that into Hebrew and then add up the numerical value of the name, then you get 666. Hmm. That, that adds up to 666. Now, another interesting thing is that if you don't put it into Hebrew and add up the numerical value of the name, that name in Greek, it adds up to 616. Okay. Now, the odd thing about that is that some manuscripts of the book of Revelation have 616 instead of 666 which appears that a, a, a scribe knew that it was supposed to be Nero, but didn't know about the Hebrew part, didn't know the Hebrew part, and so just uh, fixed it from Greek and came up with 616. Now, the, the, the next thing is that, is that John knew who this was. I think he's identifying, tagging Nero as the current head of the beast. When, when John does this, John knows, and he's expecting people in the seven churches to be able to figure it out. I have a hard time believing that some uh, some uh, clever teenager was up half the night and in the morning asked his dad, Dad, who's Henry Kissinger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. 
So, so what 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 does it mean to have his mark on either the forehead or the arm? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, the Jews were required by God, and this this is where you know what a phylactery is, is they had a little box that they would tie to their forehead, and they would have this a, a little writing of scripture in the box. You'll bind the the uh, you'll bind the words of God to your forehead or to your right hand. Hmm. Okay, that was a that was God's requirement. The word of God, the word of God had to be on your forehead or on your right hand. This is a counterfeit mark. Hmm. Okay, it's a counterfeit mark. I, and I take it as a symbolic thing. I don't think that there was a uh, an actual tattoo or an actual mark, but you had to you had to worship the beast. You had to which is the thing that brought about the persecution of Christians. They wouldn't worship the beast. They wouldn't worship Rome. Hmm. And if you wouldn't um, burn a little pinch of incense to the genius of em- the genius of the emperor and the spirit of Rome, then you were going to be thrown to the lions. You were going to be persecuted. Or you're going to be excluded from the economy. You couldn't buy or sell because you were a pariah. You were exiled. So I think it's a symbolic statement of men and women taking the word of man to themselves on their forehead or on their hand um, instead of the word of God. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I think also we, we have to ask, uh, I, I know that m- many that think about the book of Revelation also think about the Antichrist. But isn't it true that the, uh, the name Antichrist isn't even mentioned in the book of Revelation? So what what yeah, is up exactly. with that? Yeah. So that's another thing. And that's another thing. <laughs> so um, in popular in popular discussion and particularly in dispensational circles the beast and the antichrist have blended into one. Uh, so they are one one final bad guy figure at the end of the world that's the beast or the antichrist. But the, a beast in scripture is a very different kind of figure than an antichrist. Um, antichrist is th- that name. Antichrist comes up only in first John and second John, I think uh, in two, uh, in two places, first John, second John. And the beast is in revelation. And also in Daniel, for example, uh, Uh, it's part of the uh, imagery of the Old Testament as well. A beast, in scriptural parlance, a beast is a civil, a persecuting civil ruler, a persecuting king. Okay, that's a beast. In John's definition, uh, an antichrist is a false teacher within the church who denies the incarnation. Hmm. Okay, that's what an antichrist does. The spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of lies. An Antichrist is someone who's infiltrating the church and who's teaching lies about who Jesus is. Okay, so if we if we moved over into um, a modern categories, a beast would be someone like um, Stalin. Hmm. A beast would be a civil ruler who persecutes and kills thousands or tens of thousands of Christians. An antichrist would be a liberal Methodist bishop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, they are two 
different kinds of figures entirely. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thomas, do you have a question? Um, I was thinking uh, when you have in uh, Revelation 20, uh, the great chapter of the millennium, uh, we see also in the middle of the chapter that Satan is uh, released after the thousand years uh, to go out to deceive the nations yet again and to gather up an army to fight against the holy place. Uh, and also, how does this fit, fit in with the post-millennial eschatology, thinking that uh, things will, uh, the gospel will have a great impact on the world, and when Jesus gives up uh, or delivers the kingdom to his father, it will be a world that is uh, won by the gospel and dominated by the gospel. But here uh, in Revelation 20, you also see uh, a beginning of a war. Yeah, a, a, rebellion yeah, a rebellion right at the end. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so there are several um, several qualifiers to put on this. 19th century post-millennialists, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but 19th century post-millennialists tended to take the thousand years as a literal 1,000 years, but they were the tail end of the church age. So everything gets better, 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 better. Finally, we, we crest into the golden age, and that golden age is a literal thousand years. That's the last 1,000 years of the church age. Contemporary postmillennialists tend to take the 1,000 years as the entire church age, the whole church age. It's a symbol for the whole thing. All right, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, when Satan is bound— the, basically, he is. I don't. I don't think Satan is has been vaporized. I don't think Satan is non-existent. But you see, you see in that chapter. So here's another thing: uh, the, all the names, post mill, om mill, pre mill, uh, come from that one chapter. The millennium. Someone once joked. The millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. And, um, <laughs> so, but that's the one chapter where that word millennium is used. That's the only chapter in the Bible where the, the word millennium is used. It's a notoriously difficult chapter in a notoriously difficult book. And it's, I think, unfortunate that all the positions get named after one word in that one chapter in that one book. So um, take that for, for what it's worth. In, in that chapter, Satan, is, I think there's a limitation placed on what we mean by Satan being bound. I think Satan is bound with regard to his ability to deceive the nations. Okay, so it used to be in the Old Testament, you had these great empires that had spiritual forces behind them. So there was an angel of the prince of Persia. There was an angel behind Persia. There was an angel, a, a fallen god, a fallen celestial being behind the power of Rome or behind the power of Babylon. When empires went to war, their gods went to war with them. Hmm. Uh, so the god of Ekron uh, in Philistia was um, Beelzebul, who Jesus uh, treats as interchangeable with Satan in the New Testament. Um, so you have nations with spiritual force behind them. And I believe that in the New Covenant, Satan is bound 
and can't do that anymore. Mm. He, he he's restricted from restricted from deceiving the nations. He can still lie. He can still tempt. He can still do those things. And people are still sinful themselves. So we can cook up quite a lot of evil on our own. But any attempt to go back to the old system, the old pagan system, comes crashing down just within a few years. I think there was a serious attempt at that, for example, with the Third Reich. That there was all sorts of occultism involved. They they want they wanted to rebuild an ancient pagan system, and it all it comes down to nothing. So I think Satan is bound with regard to that. Um, a number of I, I'm not I won't speak for every last post millennialist, but a number of post millennialists believe that there will be a rebellion at the end of this golden era. Hmm. So at at the end of this, the the Great Commission is successfully fulfilled the the world is christianized and then satan is released one last time and he is released in order for us to be able to see that how merciful god was being to us and to see that we don't get to take any credit ourselves for how good things are that rebellion is very brief and abortive it looks scary for a moment they surround the camp of the saints but god crushes it so uh, quite a number of post-millennialists do believe that the, the, the there will be a final convulsive battle uh, right at the end. Is, is that your view? Um, tentatively. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I hold, hold it with open palms, yeah. tentatively. <laughs> Um, I don't know uh, for how long we have you, but um, it's almost been one hour, so you just have to give us uh, say when you have to go. Yeah, yeah I, I, I need to be done at an hour. Yeah, yeah, okay. So w one last question I, I, um, I wanted to ask you, and that's from Zakaria. Is that the right? Zachariah. Zachariah, yeah. <laughs> I have asked so many times, how do I pronounce that book in English? But, okay, <laughs> and, and that's chapter 14. I think that's a difficult chapter. Can you give us uh, some pointers? <laughs> so is that, is that you're talking about the play, the Mount of Olives splitting into? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, I believe that Zechariah in in uh, in Daniel and in 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 Daniel and Zechariah and in uh, certain in Matthew and Mark and um, you've got and in Revelation, you've got apocalyptic imagery. Mm. So I don't believe that the Mount of Olives is literally going to uh, split in two. Mm. Right? I, I believe that those um, sometimes those images are um, images of historical temporal judgments, like the destruction of Jerusalem, and other times it's a sign of the end of all things. The, the rule of thumb that I use is the end of all things is uh, I take any passage that talks about the general resurrection of the dead, mm. the dead being raised or us, us being gathered to him or the dead in Christ will rise or the dead will hear his voice. Things like that are talking about the end of the world. Mm. When it talks about the rocks melting, like in second in, in second Peter or uh, the mountain dividing uh, those are often used as cataclysmic images of temporal historical 
judgments. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was uh, the last question, I think. Uh, I just got to say it's it's uh, it's been a real blessing to have you on, Douglas, and uh, hopefully someday we will uh, you will take a trip over to Norway and jo- <laughs> join us at our conference, and <laughs> that will be a real that would be real fun. But uh, that would be fun. It's difficult in these times. We have something called Corona here in Norway. I don't know if if you know what that is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people talk about it, but I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. God bless yeah. Douglas Wilson, and thank you so much for joining joining us on our show. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. Goodbye. All right. Med lite sån halskocken engelsk och lite försäljligt så 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 fick vi det till, men. Oh, det er ikke lett å snakke engelsk når ikke det er det vi gjør til daglig, men det var trivligt å ha ham på. Det er jo klart når han åpner opp den Pandoras esko der og skal snakke om åpenbaringsboker, så er det jo aldrig nok tid. Vi skulle jo hatt en time til, og nå sitter nok mange i salen, og, eller i salen, sier jeg. Sitter nok mange eh, og lurer på, ja, men hva med det, hva med det, hva med det, og, og hadde vi hatt en time til, så skulle vi spørre den en haug med spørsmål til, men nå, nå var det den time vi fikk, og det synes vi var... Veldig trivelig. Men Thomas, du hadde vel noen spørsmål til på plakaten din som vi kanskje bare kunne hive ut og, vet ikke, vi bare kunne drøst litt om, for eksempel. Ja, altså for eksempel, når det kommer til hvordan lese åpenbaringen, mm. skal den leses kronologisk, altså i forhold steg 1, 2, 3, altså i forhold kapitel 1, er skjer ting i en kronologisk rekkefølge, eller er det ting som vi leser som blir gjentoket, mm. som, eller som det snakker om en samme ting i, bare i forskjellige vinkler, om kan si det så. Ja, stemmer det. Ja, for det, det er jo en veldig tradisjonell lesning som säger at man skal lese åpenbaringsboket kronologisk, der A, B og C, sant? Det, det som sker følger etter navn. Og jeg vil være delvis enig med det, selv om at jeg vil ikke si at det blir helt riktig å ta kapitel for kapitel, alt skjer etterhånd, på grund av du ser Babylon for eksempel, byen Babylon, blir dømt opp til flere ganger. Og derfor tror jeg det blir litt feil å si at den samme byen skal bli dømt flere ganger etter hverandre, men det beskriver den samme dommen på forskjellige måter. Så det tror jeg er et viktig aspekt å, å, å få med. Jeg tänkte på en annen ting, vi snakket jo litt om denne her, jeg tror det kan være nyttig når man går gjennom åpenbaringsboken og blir litt kjende med de forskjellige karakterene som, som viser sig i boken. Uh, men han snakket om Babylon, han var så vidt innom kjøken. Uh, og for mange av dere som lytter på oss, så tenker dere, ja han bare sa det var kjøken, men han forklarte det ikke, eller han beviste det ikke. Og jeg tenkte i hvert fall jeg kunne bare ta litt kort om det da. Og igjen, sant, med å så han nevnte at åpenbaringsboken er på en måte en av de bøgene i Nye Testamentet som er mest dynket i Gamle Testamentet. Det er vel over, hvor mange vers er det der er? Jeg har sagt det før, men nå står det litt stilt. Andre over 400 vers, og halvparten av de er liksom sitat eller referanser tilbake til Gamle Testamentet. Så jeg pleier ofte å si det at hvis du skal lese åpenbaringsboken, gjør det da også samtidig med Ezekiel på sig och för sig det sån att du läser Ezekiels bok och Uppenbarelsbok samtidigt för det är er så ofattligt många likheter. Du har för exempel de fyra hästarna som och träffar igen på mode i Ezekiel där Herren snackar om sina fyra landeplager som är er helt lika som de vi ser i som blir symboliserat genom de fyra hästarna i i Uppenbarelsen 8 är er det väl. 
Um, och så ser man också, nej, det är er i uppenbarelsen 6. Um, och så ser man också att Ezekiel han får en bokroll. Han får besked om att ta den bokrollen och han ska äta den. Han ska vara söd i munnen men bitter i magen. Det samma får Johannes besked om att ta den bokrollen, sant? Som en besegla budsjensi och äta han ska vara söd i munnen och bitter i magen, sant? Gå för skön proklamer och det samma får Ezekiel besked om. Vi ser att en engel i uppenbarelsen flyr ner för att märka pannen till de som ska komma ut i förträngseln. Det samma ser vi i Ezekiels bok. Um, I Ezekiel så får man introducerat en sköka. Det är er ett helt kapitel som snackar om sköken i kapitel 16. Och då beskriver Gud Israel, alltså sitt eget folk, kan beskriva sitt folk som en sköka som är drivet hem av alla konger, alla nationer. Um, och han snackar om att du var min hustru. Men var gift. Jag uh, gifte mig med dig, men, men du drev hår och därför så sänder jag dig nog veck. Och det samma ser man i Jeremia 3, Gud beskriver sin Israel som, som en köke och därför säger han, jag ska ge dig ett skilsmissebrev och sända dig veck på grund av din, din, din trälldom och ditt, ditt horliv. Och det samma ser man också i Jesaja, det samma tema i Jesaja 1, kapitel 21. Se hvordan den trofaste staden har er blitt en köke. Den var full av rettferdig dom, rettferdighet bodde i den, men nå bare mordere. Så det er også viktig att se at hvem er det i grunnen som Gud tidligere er kalt for en köke. Jo, Israel blir kalt for en köke, og det er da det er veldig interessant å se når du kommer til åpenbaringen. Vi kan ta ifra kapitel 17, når denne köken blir beskrevet. Um, I ånden bar han mig så ut i ørken, og jeg så en kvinne sitte på en skarlagen rødt dyr som var full av Guds bespottelige navn. Det hade sju hoder og ti horn, og det har vi jo fått beskrevet litt av Douglas Wilson, han snakker om Rom ble kalt byen på de sju fjell, og her er det snakk om Rom, en skarlagen rød drake, sant? sju hoder, som er sju fjell, som sju konger sitter på, og så säger han lite senere at fem av de kongerne har vært, og han ene er nå. Og Hvis du teller kongene, han tällde ikke alle, men jeg kan göra det for dere. Julius Caesar er jo den første eh, romerske herskeren. Og så kommer eh, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, eh, nummer tre, Gaius Caesar, nummer fire, Claudius Caesar, eh, nummer fem, og den som er nummer seks da, det er Nero Caesar. Eh, og han regerte fra 54 til 68 etter Kristus. Og så Itteppå så ser man Galba Caesar komma och han regerade ifrån 68 till 69. Han regerade i sex månader. Nero regerade i 16 år, Galba regerade i i sex månader. Och det som då är er intressant om den här um, nummer kungen nummer 6 då om du vill. För då står det, det i kapitel 17 vers 10. Här er den förstan som har visat om de sju hoden är er sju fjäll som kvinnan sitter på. Det er også sju konger, fem er falt, den ene er nå, og den andre er ännu ikke kommet, og når han kommer skal han bare være en kort tid. Sant? Så Galba skulle være, regjere, altså den konge nummer sju skulle regjere i kort tid i forhold til konge nummer seks. Nero, konge nummer seks, regjerer i 13 år, Galba i seks måneder. Det også passer veldig. Og her også er jo dette med å tidfeste hvor tid Johannes sitter og skriver dette her. Han säger den sjätte kungen är er nå. Och när då 
Nero Caesar han dödde i år 68, november 68, så det är helt fel. Då blir det väldigt fel att datera uppenbarelseboken till här var skrevet i år 95 eller runt år 90. För med interna bevis som är er med att datera boken till när det var Julius Caesar som som regerade. Men grundtext säger det här då, okej, okay, dragen, sant? En sjuhova drage. Och så blir han beskriven som ett stort rike, men han blir också zoomat in på en specifik konge i det rike som man ser. Han fokuserar in på det ena hovet som får ett sår um, i pannen. Men köken, kvinnan sitter och rir på denna dragen. Och lägg märke till beskrivelsen av hur denna köken ser ut. Kvinnan, och nu är er i kapitel 17, vers 4. Kvinnan var klädd i purpurrött och skalagen och smycket med guld och kostbara stenar och perlar. I hon hade hon ett guldbägar av styggedommen och urenheten av hennes horeliv. Och på pannen hennes var det skrevet ett namn. I hope you feel included in all of this. Uh, you can just sit and uh, nod affirmatively to what he says. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I will uh, take something in English uh, maybe a little bit afterwards. Ja, så lägg märke till det nu här. Hur har ett namn i pannen, hur ett bägar i hon och hur klädd i rött och skalagen och guld och sylla perle, kostbara steiner och så vidare. Och det som är er intressant med den beskrivelsen där, hvis du går tillbaka till Gamla testamentet och läser prästauniformen till Aaron, så ser man akkurat de samma färgerna, kostbara steiner på 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 bröstplattan sig. Han skulle ha ett namn i pannen sitt där det stod helige till Herren. Så lägg märke till att den här köken är er klädd i de judiska prästakläder. Och hur sitt man då de judiska prästaskapet sitter och rir på rum. Och vidare så ser man att de får fylla de hellige. Ehm, de ska föra krig mot lammet och lammet ska seger över dem. Och vad var det som skedde? Vad var det som tog livet av av Jesus? Ja, man kan säga si det var romarna, men vad var det som fick romarna att göra det? Jötarna. Jötarna tog Jesus framför de romerske, den romerske herrförarna och säger det är er korsfestan, korsfestan med hängen av en konge en Caesar. Sant? Så jødene beskrev Caesarene som konge. Och det som då är er intressant är er att när man läser vidare i uppenbarelsen så ser man inte denna köken här er förfullt barnet, förfullt i helige, sant? Så ser man dragen snör sig runt och förtär köken efterpå. Och vem var det som förtärte jødene? Rom de kom i år 70 som jag snackat om när vi gick igenom Matteus 24. De kom i år 70 i Labyen och tempel i grus. 1,1 miljoner judar blev drept och resten blev fört i fängelskap. Och Herren snackar om det där stora blodbadet som ska ske. så det det är bara en intressant tanke här då när man då ser på slutet av kapitel 18 så ser man där att han löftet en väldig engel upp en sten så stor som en kvernsten och kastade den i havet och sa slik skall den stora byen Babylon bli kastet ned med stor kraft och den ska aldrig mer bli funnit mer lydna harpspel och musik och så vidare och så står det vidare och det blev funnet blod av profeter och hellige henne och av alla den som har er blivit mördat på jorden och vad var det Jesus sa i sin vetalar för fariserarna att allt det rättfärdiga blod i från Abel till Sakaria som kom över denna släkt och nu säger han i denna byn så blev det funnet blod av all de helige Jesus säger docke pynte gravene till profeterna docke er det som tege liv av dig som jag sant Jerusalem Jerusalem korte vill jag 
samla nej Jerusalem Jerusalem du som dreper profeten och stenar dig sända dig hur ofta vill inte jag samla dina barn som är höna men dock vill inte och det är er det på måde när byen blir beskriven här så står det de som dreper profetarna och stenar dig som har er blivit sända du och det är er det som blir också funnen i denna byen Babylon blod av de hellige och de rättfärdige och så står det att denna byen blir lyfta upp som en stor sten och kasta i sjön Och det samma ser man også i kapitel 6, sant? Så ser man, da han åpnet det tredje seilet, hørte jeg eh, det tredje livsvesenet si, kom og se, og jeg så og se en svart hest, og han som satt på den hadde en skålvekt i hånden sin, skal vi se, det var feil kapitel, um, det var i kapitel 8, vers 8, så blåste den andre engelen, og noe som lignet et stort fjell, som brant med blev kastet i havet, Så när han beskriver det här domarna över denna byen, när han beskriver dommen över Jerusalem som är er denna sjögen, så beskriver han det som ett stort fjäll som blir lyfta upp och kastat i sjön. Och när Jesus står på Oljeberget i Matteus 23 och ser ner över Jerusalem och nettopsant har sin vetal över över prästarna, så säger han till disciplarna och detta här är er ett vers som väldigt ofta blir missbrukt. Hvis du har tro som et sønnemsfrø, så kan du be mig, og jeg skal ta dette fjellet. Han sier ikke bare fjellet generelt, jeg skal ta dette fjellet, lyfte det opp og kaste det i sjøen. Han står på Sions berg, og han sier i grunnen at dette fjellet her skal bli lyftet upp og kastet i sjøen. Og det er det vi ser skjer i åpenbaringen, at denne store Sions berg blir lyftet upp og kastet i sjøen, som er på en måte et billedspråk for å beskriva en dom som nå kommer över och med sitter igen med det himmelska Jerusalem mitt på så Douglas Wilson snackade om det är er en historien om de två byarna den ene byen Jerusalem den jordiska som blir dömt och den himmelska Jerusalem som kommer ner som boka avslutar med så det var bara några såna små tilläggsting som jag tänkte kunde vara viktigt att lägga till um, Thomas är er det någon tanke <laughs> All right, Nayim, what did you think of uh, the interview? I think it was a pleasure first yeah. to be here mm. uh, and with you guys. Um, it, was, it was a joy to hear um, Douglas Wilson talk about his view of eschatology. Mm. And I think it's important um, that we recognize this. While it does touch on um, major doctrines, but this isn't this eschatology is a, is a doctrine that we can disagree on mm. as brothers and and not uh look down upon one another or decry each other as heretics mm. so and it, but it's also a fascinating study uh one that is often uh we use an idiom in the states like often taken uh to very extremes um <clears throat> and so it's it, it is interesting especially from my background in hermeneutics a hermeneutical level mm. to see how each position comes to their their view through how they're exegeting and, and treating scripture. Um, so it's it's a fascinating study that even I am I'm just beginning. Uh, we, we've had a lot of talks uh, between us and, and you as well. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating study, and it's uh, something that I'm definitely going to be looking in more into in the future. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. You just arrived here in Norway and been in quarantine in 10 days, so now you're free. and uh, <laughs> I'm free at last. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I bet we will. Uh, our listeners will uh, see more to Nahum, 
He also has an, his own podcast called the Hermeneutics Podcast. And if you're interested in hermeneutics and and uh, what would you say if you sh- can give us a brief introduction to what hermeneutics is? Yeah, hermeneutics hermeneutics is the uh, art and science of biblical interpretation. Hmm. And so, generally, my podcast deals with um, how to read your Bible, how to interpret what you're reading in the Bible uh, correctly. There are rules, there are, um, in the text itself, there are rules that appear of how we are supposed to read. God holds us accountable to how we interpret his word. And so hermeneutics governs the way in which we read God's word. And so basically the podcast is there to help um, Christians understand these rules, recognize these rules, understand them, and, and to interpret their Bible well. Mm. Very interesting. I have listened to it, and uh, I have been real blessed to listen to your podcast. Where can you find your podcast? As far as I know, I think it's on all major platforms. Spotify? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, the Hermeneutics Podcast, a, a really original name. <laughs> um, but uh, it's on. It's it's mostly 15 to 20 minute episodes of instruction uh, in English. Mm. Unfortunately, we'll have to get a Norwegian version out soon. Um, but it's also interviews on hot topics and stuff like that. So, uh, but it's on most platforms, I think. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, I think we come to lite avordning. For en gång skull så ska episoden inte vara i två timmar. <laughs> så så men uh, det kommer nog att bli en del frågor lite sån runt den här episoden här och jag vet att många gånger när man touchar in på uppenbaring och så sitter bara folk igen med mer frågor än det de har svar. Men då kan i alla fall anbefalla den boken här till Douglas Wilson som heter When the man comes around. Visa den till kamera där. When the man comes around det är ju titeln som är togen ifrån Johnny Cash si sin sang eller väl. Ja. Så du kan ju höra den sangen i bakgrunden mens du läser den. Ja, jag tror det blir anbefaling för dagens episode och så tror jag med säga tack för nu, visst inte du och hej anbefaling Thomas. Jag vill egentligen bara slänga på anbefaling med fulla Canon Press. Ja. Så går ut ifrån menigheten till Douglas Wilson och dig, utifrån mm. Christchurch. Ja. Mycket god tala och många goda artiklar och så ut på internet. Stämmer det. Han är er väldigt han är er ju bloggen med blogg, det er bloggen hans och så er han ju podcast. Podcast, ja. Eh, men men ska spåra om Gog och Magog, men ja ja. Det får vi ta en gång. Ja, jag tror mig säga tack för idag och på igenhör. Det var väldigt gilt.